Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And then he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, your word. Lord, we thank you that we have it for us today. And Father, as we come to this passage, we pray, God, that you would give us understanding according to your spirit. That, God, you would help us, would teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. That, oh God, you would enlighten the eyes, not only our physical eyes, but the eyes of our heart. Father, help us to live for you. We thank you for passages like this, for teachings from our Lord Jesus on how we might love and serve you. So Father, I pray your blessing upon the preaching of the word today. Protect me, your servant, from error. And would you be honored and glorified in every word, every thought, yes, Lord, every beat of our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna begin this morning by telling you a story, a story that will forever be remembered among my family. You might say it's part of layman folklore, except it's real. So we had a lot of family gatherings when I was younger, mainly with all of our family that lived in Indiana would come over to Illinois where we lived and we'd have these big grand gatherings where everyone got together. and. Uh, for those of you who know, my mother knows that she loves to bake and she really loved cooking for this. And so she made her famous apple pie, which I tell you was one of the highlights of my life growing up. And so this one occasion, mom made these beautiful pies, beautiful apple pies, and we couldn't wait to dig in. There's me, there's my dad, there's some cousins. We're just, I mean, like forget cutting it up. We just want to sit around it with a fork and eat it. And so mom, as most mothers do, she looked on with pride, right? Nothing better than seeing her family love the things that she makes. That's how she loved us, by cooking for us. So we began to eat this pie. And almost immediately, everyone knew something was wrong. 
You ever been in that awkward situation? You're like, I have to spit this out, but I don't want to. Like, I wanna say something, but I shouldn't. But, so it took that one cousin, it wasn't me, okay? It took that one cousin to just spit it out and go, Aunt Judy, that is terrible. That is the worst pie that you've ever made. So you can imagine what happened next, right? The rest of us put on armor, like hit under the table, which are, what is gonna happen? Mom's thinking, and I spoke up and said, Mom, it's just a little salty, just a little salty. And of course, then I was like, a little. Well, anyway, we found out what happened. What happened was mom mistakenly used salt instead of sugar in this pie. And right now, everyone just got a taste in their mouth. You know exactly what we tasted. So to this day, anytime anyone makes an apple pie, it is right in my home to ask, did you put enough salt in that pie? Did you put enough salt in that pie? This story shared with permission by my mother who couldn't be with us today. But why did he tell us that story? Well, I tell you that story because it illustrates, I think very well, how something good can be entirely spoiled with the wrong ingredient. This is what we're witnessing here in Luke chapter six, verses one through 11. The Sabbath is good. The Sabbath is good. From the very act of creation, where God made the universe out of nothing in the span of six days. And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. So God has called his people to follow the same pattern for their own work and their own rest. Six days you shall work and one day shall be holy unto me, you shall rest. Furthermore, this came before the 10 commandments, a creation ordinance given to his people. God put it into the moral law into the 10 commandments, into the fourth commandment. You remember what it says, Exodus 30, verse eight, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And even in the New Testament era, both the Bible itself and church history shows us that God's people have continued to follow this very same pattern of work and rest, work and Sabbath. Now we know, and you can go back to one of my sermons in Exodus where I talk about this in detail. We know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed the observance of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. We know that that happened, but what didn't happen is that Jesus's resurrection did not abolish the call for God's people to set apart a day for worship, a day for rest, and a day to serve one another. And while every day of the week belongs to the Lord, the Lord's day, that's what it's called in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, Sunday, the Lord's day is a gift. It's a special gift from the Lord to his people, a day for our joy, a day for our delight, a day set aside for him. The Pharisees, they're called here scribes and Pharisees, the priests of the day, the Pharisees have taken this special gift from God, something very good, and they've spoiled it with the wrong ingredients. And their slavery to the law and their extreme zeal to uphold 
the law, they had done what Pharisees do. They had added hundreds, hundreds of their own regulations. Here's things you can do to make sure you're really keeping the Sabbath. They had added to it regulations that served only to spoil what was supposed to be something good and something delightful. So it comes as no surprise then that the self-righteousness of these, and I'll put air quotes around it, lords of the Sabbath, would inevitably collide with Jesus, the one who calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And it's this collision that we're seeing in our text before us. Now, Christians, especially in the last hundred years or so, have largely abandoned biblical Sabbath observance. But it'd be good for us to remember its place in our lives. In fact, our church's own confession, and we do have a confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's very clear about the importance of Sabbath observance. In fact, in chapter 21, it reminds and calls us to set apart the Lord's day as a day of worship, a day of rest, and a day, I quote, a day of duties of necessity and duties of mercy. The confession reminds us that the Sabbath, the Lord's day, is given primarily for worship, rest, and duties of necessity and mercy. And why are you telling us that, Pastor Dan? This isn't a class on the confession. Well, no, it's just that often people ask me, where do they get that from? Where did they get that from? Duties of necessity and mercy. Right here. They get it right here in Luke chapter six. And so these two things are gonna form our outline for this morning. So for those of you who like to take notes in verses one through five, we find the explanation for our first point, what we'll call duties of necessity. Duties of necessity. And in verses six through 11, we find the explanation for the second point, duties of mercy, duties of mercy. So let's look then at the first point, duties of necessity. In verses one through five, we find Jesus with his disciples and they're passing through grain fields. Verse one, and this is very Luke-like, right? Verse one is very specific about what they're doing, what they've done. Notice what it says. They plucked and they ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Everybody have a picture of this? If you've ever just picked off some grain, you don't wanna just throw it in your mouth, right? right? You wanna pluck the piece of grain, you wanna run them in between your fingers to get rid of some of the chaff, and then you can have that piece of grain to put into your mouth. To be clear though, I wanna be clear, cutting through someone's field and plucking a little grain was not against the law. That was something that was provided for in the law. You can go look in Deuteronomy 23. For any of the travelers that are traveling through somebody's field, you could pluck some grain and eat it. What you couldn't do is do a full-scale harvest of your neighbor's grain, right? You couldn't go out there with your sickle and say, I'm gonna take this plot for myself. No, of course they left some of the edges for the poor, right? You may know those gleaning laws. But if you were traveling, this is a mercy from God. If you were traveling and you ran out of provisions, you know that I can head through their field. And then I can take some of that grain and eat it. Again, as long as you didn't steal a big portion of it, then this was fine. So from that sense, as Jesus is being accused of breaking the law, he's not in this case, going through the field and taking some of the grain was completely allowed 
but it gets clear in verse two. In fact, verse two, because we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about these Pharisees over the next several months, and I've tried to open it up for you a little bit week after week as we meet them. You learn a lot about them in verse two, a lot. First, how did they know this was happening? I don't know if you ever ask those questions when you look at the text, but I do. Like, how did they know? Like, I kind of picture them. Are they like hiding behind the rows of grain, right? Like, let's just see where Jesus goes. Let's just, <gasps> gotcha. Or were they just outright following him around? Like, secondly, right? Are they just outright following him around? Like, I'm just gonna stay right on your tail and watch every move you make. I'm gonna call you out on anything I see. Well, whichever it is, can you picture an ambush? Can you just picture he's being ambushed? And second thing I want you to see here that we learn about them is they do not mince words. They do not know of whom it is that they are speaking. Why are you breaking the law on the Sabbath? They're accusing Jesus of breaking God's law. You're like, wait, what? What, what's, what law is Jesus breaking? Well, Jesus was not breaking the law. I'll just say that up front. Jesus and his disciples are not breaking the law, but he was breaking their law. Jesus was breaking their law. You see, with regard to the general prohibition against work and the, the Sabbath prohibitions and the law did prohibit work uh, on the Sabbath, the Pharisees had added to it and they wanted to, let's clarify, what does it mean you shall do no work, right? Well, here's 39 types of work that you can't do. That's what they did. They had 39 types of work, including, take note, reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. Those are the four. So to them, plucking the grain was the same as reaping. Rubbing the grain in your hands to separate wheat and chaff was the same thing as threshing and winnowing. And because they ate this grain that they picked, what did they do? They prepared it by doing all of that. So thus says the Pharisees, this is what they're saying. With every mouthful of grain, you are breaking the law in four different ways. That's what they had added to the law. And that's what they're accusing Jesus and his disciples of doing. There are several ways that Jesus could have defended his disciples. I know there's more, but these are several ways I thought of. I mean, he could have just said, hey guys, lighten up. Even if I were breaking the law, it's just a small violation, no biggie. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. He could have said that what they did was not against God's law at all, but only against their man-made additions. He could have just been that clear but he didn't say that either. He could have even said, you know what? It doesn't matter what people do on the Sabbath. To each their own. He indeed did not say that. Instead, what Jesus does is he seeks to uphold the Sabbath because he does uphold the Sabbath and he sought to free it, free it from the Pharisees' man-made perversions. And how does he do this? He tells a story. He appeals to an example that some of you may or may not be familiar with. It's an example from the life of David and it's from 1 Samuel 21. So you can make a note, 1 Samuel 21, 
Go back and read that account later today. And when you do, you'll find you have David. God has rejected Saul as king. David's been anointed as king. Saul's still alive. David isn't king yet. So if you know anything about David's early life, you know what he's doing right now. He's on the run. David is fleeing. He is on the run from Saul. And if you've ever had to leave in a hurry and be on the run, you know that you don't always take with you everything you need. And so he hadn't packed provisions for a long time away, right? So David comes to the tabernacle. David comes to the, the temple's not there yet, right? So it's the tabernacle. He comes to the tabernacle where he encounters Ahimelech, who was the priest. David's hungry. His men are hungry. So he asks Ahimelech for food. And he's told that, hey, <laughs> the only food we have available is the food inside, the bread that's on the table of presence. For those of you who are here for our Exodus series, or maybe if you just know that, that's special bread. That's the bread that was made 12 loaves each week. It was put there on the table before the Lord. And who could eat it? Only the priests. Only the priests. Only those who were consecrated and set apart. So technically, for David and his men to eat this bread, it would be a violation of the ceremonial law. That's why Ahimelech at first is like, that's all I have. I can't give you that. But, and this I think is the very thing to which Jesus is pointing the Pharisees and what he's pointing us to, is that Ahimelech, as he considers the total righteousness of God, he recognized that he had a higher duty to meet a basic human need. That is, he had a higher duty to make sure that these men did not starve. He had a higher duty to feed David, the anointed, and to feed his men. So what did he do? He gives them the bread to eat. So what's Jesus's point? And then after this, he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, right? Jesus's point then is that if it was proper for David's men to eat the bread of the presence, as holy as it was, it was all the more appropriate for the disciples to pick a little grain on the Sabbath to satisfy their own hunger. Jesus wants the Pharisees to know that their biggest problem is not that they are too strict. He doesn't even go into, this is your law, whatever, he could have done that, but remember he didn't. He doesn't want them to know that their biggest problem is that they're too strict. No, the problem is, is that they had forgotten about the true and the inward purpose of the law. The law that demands love for God and love for our neighbor. That's how the law is summarized. Love God, love your neighbor and love for neighbor. This is the rebuke that Jesus is giving in this answer. Love for neighbor certainly includes not burdening them with unnecessary laws, which would prevent them from meeting a basic human necessity. What you've done, Pharisees, is you've heaped all this stuff on there and you're robbing your fellow man of food when they need it. So Sabbath observance is good, it is right, the practice of observing it should not prevent God's people from doing works of necessity, should not prevent God's people from doing what is necessary in order to love and to serve others as God intends. I think we get that. 
I think the, the 21st century church, perhaps even this church, we get that. But the truth is, for most of us, determining what is necessary to do on the Sabbath is not the part we struggle with. Rather, we struggle with filling our Sabbath days with things that are unnecessary and then calling them necessary. Whether it be the tyranny of work, the tyranny of sports, the tyranny of our own selfishness, or just the tyranny of the urgent, all of us, myself included, often neglect the gift that the Lord's day is. And we fill it up. We just fill it up with stuff, just like we do every other day. And when we do that, it changes us and not for the good. Because how we then look at it is we look at the Sabbath and we go, if there's time for worship and if there's time for rest, if there's time for service to others, then we'll find a way to make it happen. But only after all this other stuff, our priorities are wrong. Our priorities are wrong. The heart of the matter, in fact, maybe the question for the heart, and boy, this one hits hard. It hit me hard all week. Which is more necessary for honoring the Lord's day, for honoring the Sabbath? What God says is necessary or what we think is necessary? I can't answer that for you, but I know the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, He will help you answer that question. So let's go then to another Sabbath day. Another Sabbath day in verse six. This time, Jesus is doing what Jesus did on Sabbath days and what he wants us to do. He went to church. He went to the synagogue, right? He went there to worship. And because he's Jesus, because he's a rabbi, he's teaching. And there in the synagogue was a man with a withered hand. So this is a man who has basically no use of his hand or one of his arms even. And with Jesus's ministry to this man, we come to our second point this morning, duties of mercy. We've seen duties of necessity. Now we'll look at duties of mercy. Notice that the Pharisees are on the prowl again. There they are. They're in church too. Look at verse seven. Why are they there? To grow in the grace and knowledge of God, right? They're there to be good people. No, look what it says. <laughs> to find a reason to accuse him. Wow, it's pretty clear. To find a reason to accuse him. There they are. They must have heard that he had been healing people on the Sabbath days. And of course, they considered healing on the Sabbath to be what? Believe it or not, it's a form of work. It was forbidden. You can't tend to people's needs like this on the Sabbath. In fact, here's how they put it. Unless the situation was dire, unless someone or maybe your neighbor's animal or something like that, unless they were about to die, it would have to wait till the next day. So the signs on their doors, if they had such things, this is what it read. Unless you're about to die right now, come back tomorrow. They couldn't do anything of mercy. But Jesus, God in the flesh, the giver of the law. I just love this when we get this glimpse in Luke. He knows why they're there. He's not surprised. He knows what they're thinking, Luke tells us. 
This isn't a sharing time. Why did you come today? I've been in those churches where they, you know, stand up if you're a visitor. Why are you here today? Well, so-and-so invited me. You know, it's not like, hey, everybody stand up. Like, we're here to trap you, Jesus. No, he knows. Jesus knows why they're there. Look at verse eight. It says it. It says it. He knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. So he looks at that man and he says to him, come up here, come and stand here next to me. And then look at verse nine again. Jesus turns to them. If you have trouble keeping up with your pronouns here, he's turning to them. He's turning to the Pharisees. He turns to them and look what he says to them. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? That's a really good question, isn't it? Jesus gives really great answers. He also asks really great questions. It's a great question. Obviously, everyone would say, well, the Sabbath is for doing good, right? The Sabbath is for doing good. I like how Philip Ryken, author and pastor, he says it well. He says, the do-nothing Pharisees were so concerned about keeping their man-made rules that they wouldn't even lift a finger to help someone in need. And he continues, so Jesus uses this occasion to show them that by refusing to do good on the Sabbath, they were actually causing harm. See, by refusing to help him, they're actually doing harm to him. So not only was it not wrong to help him, but it was wrong not to help him. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me put it another way. Jesus was not simply trying to show the Pharisees that their view of the Sabbath was inadequate. He was showing them that their view of the Sabbath was immoral, that it was immoral. So instead of keeping God's law, which they thought they were doing, the Pharisees were actually guilty of breaking God's law. Their underlying attitude toward people in need was loveless, merciless. We'll even call it cruel. And this attitude is on full display in their response. It's recorded there in verse 11. Jesus heals the man completely. Look there at verse 11. Look at their response. They were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This was a discussion about preserving life on the Sabbath, right? This was a discussion about healing life on the Sabbath. Look what they're doing. They have murderous hatred in their heart. They're looking for a way to take life. They're looking for a way to take even Jesus's life. That's law-breaking. That's law-breaking. And so once again, we're confronted with not a technical theological issue, although it is, I think we're also confronted with an issue of the heart. It's really easy to keep a list of things that make us good enough for God. You know what I'm talking about, right? We do this kind of subconsciously most of the time. If I just do these things, I'll be all right. Have my quiet time this morning. I mean, I know I'm not really living for God, but as long as I have that quiet time, I'm okay, right? Oh, I prayed when I needed to. Oh, I went to church. Oh, I served at this. Oh, I did that. It's easy to have that list of things that make us good enough for God. So the Pharisees had, they had their list of things that made them good enough. But sometimes when we do that, I would actually say most of the time when we do that, we actually end up neglecting, missing the things that are most important to God. Even in our zeal to honor God with our lives, 
even in our zeal to honor his call to Sabbath worship and Sabbath rest, we can come, become, excuse me, blind to the very heart of his law, which I've already said, to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We fail to do that. In fact, I could put it this way. We fail to love God while loving others. We fail to love God as we ought while failing to love others. If our service to God blinds us to the law of love, if we're just keeping our checklist, yeah, Pastor Danny preaching in the choir today. Here I am, Sabbath rest. On this day, I'm gonna give to the Lord. And you're resting in that, you're resting in the wrong place. That's legalism too. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's his point. If your service to God blinds you to the law of love, then our service is just service to ourselves and not service to God. That's, that's Jesus's point. It's the failure of the Pharisees. And once again, they've taken something good and they've spoiled it with the wrong ingredient. They've spoiled it with their own self-righteousness. They might as well put salt into an apple pie instead of sugar. The men who wrote the Westminster Confession, our church's confession, had these things in mind 1643 to 1647, that's when it was written. They had these things in mind. They wanted to help us understand what the scriptures teach about the Sabbath. So they reminded us that the Sabbath, the Lord's day now, Sunday, is for worship. It's for rest and it's for acts of necessity and it's for acts of mercy. And as they did, and as we should, they didn't waver from the revelation that Jesus gives us here in this text. And I don't want you to miss it. So we'll end here at verse five. What does Jesus say? The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. They knew, the writers of the confession knew, you should know. Of course, the early church knew. All of us who follow Jesus should know that this day, the Lord's day, the Sabbath day has abiding significance for us. Some just like to say, it's that one commandment that Jesus fulfilled all the way and I don't have to keep it anymore. But the other nine I do, hey, newsflash, he kept all 10. He fulfilled them all and he did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to do that. He came to teach us what the law really meant. And he came to show us that our only hope, our only righteousness is in him. So the call here is to turn from your own self-righteousness and turn to God. You can't be obedient to him. You can't follow him without his help, without his spirit. And so I think the question we all need to ask ourselves, myself included, what wrong ingredients am I putting in? to spoil this gift from God. He's brought to us this wonderful gift, a day of rest, a day of gladness, a day of joy, a day of serving one another, a day, of course, not to neglect doing what is good and right. But how am I, how are you honoring the Lord's day in your heart? How are you bowing your knee, not only to Lord Jesus Christ, but Lord Jesus Christ? who is Lord of the Sabbath. May God himself help us, help me to keep his day, to keep it while loving him and loving others for our good and for his glory. Let all the people say, amen.